This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, The Young Turks, a Best of the Left activism update, Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Onion Radio News, The Progressive, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode is not likely to remind you of a shining city on a hill. Problem. A lot of the bombs we're dropping in Afghanistan are killing unarmed civilians, women and children and other people. You lose points for shooting when you're playing Call of Duty. So what do you do? Well, you could stop bombing, but no, it's too lucrative. The bombing business is thriving right now. It's like what hula hooping was in the 1950s. Can't get enough of it. Well, you could decrease the bombing and only do it in extremely rare moments when you have no other choice. But no, no, it's too fun. Do you stop wanting sex just because you're bad at it? Hell no, you jump right back on that horse and try it again. I'm, I'm not saying w- women are horses. I, I'm just saying. So the Obama administration came up with a brilliant answer. Too many civilians dying? You change the definition of the word civilian. How beautiful is that? And at this point, most of you with an intelligence greater than an eggplant parmesan are thinking, you can't just change the definition of a word. But if you're a president, you can. You can change words and meanings and anything. Just run around decreeing. Dessert is now breakfast. Breakfast is now lunch. And premature ejaculation is now a just right ejaculation. Let's see the first lady make fun of me now. Civilian used to mean anybody who was not actively fighting a battle. However, now the Obama administration considers any military-age males in a strike zone as combatants, greatly decreasing the number of civilians around a target. Picture this. Maybe you're just a village camel whisperer in Afghanistan, but nope, now you're a combatant. If you're a mentally challenged man trying to figure out how to eat your soup, doesn't matter. Combatant. The interesting thing is you would also have to apply this definition to ourselves, right? So that means when you're in an airport and all those soldiers are walking around you with semi-automatics, you're now a military combatant. You thought you were just a mid-level IT guy working on Cinnabon number two and love handle number seven, but no, you're a warrior preparing to use that Cinnabon with lethal force. It also means that everyone in the planes that were hijacked on 9-11 were no longer civilians because they were in the proximity of a terrorist. So they were all combatants. Starting to sound a little weird, starting to sound like reality in a fun house mirror but with less fun? Yeah, that's what it is. It's foality. The world is now whatever makes us most comfortable, even if it means we have to redefine words to get there. Look, we don't like killing civilians. It makes us feel a little icky, right? But in foality, we aren't killing civilians. They're combatants now, who technically didn't know they were fighting, and were only armed with falafel. Email Obama. Tell him he doesn't get to redefine our world. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. And even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at Lee Camp. .net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. New York Times has a story by Joe Becker and Scott Shane on uh, President Obama's kill list. That is the people uh, that have been declared militants and uh, people that need to be executed with our drone strikes. But before you even get to the kill list, uh, what President Obama has done in regards to uh, other uh, portions of our national security apparatus is also interesting and amazing in a lot of ways. First, uh, when he had said that we will no longer do the torture, which is true, and 
what we're holding fast to, the United States of America and our agents do not do torture. Uh, and we will no longer be doing the uh, black sites where we hold prisoners indefinitely, and sometimes in Eastern European countries where they were literally in prisons that were former gulags. Uh, well, the CIA complained. So President Obama had to adjust uh, his strategy. So, for example, they came up with a new definition for detention facility that ex uh, excluded places used to hold people on a short-term transitory basis. In other words, yeah, they're still open. Keep them short-term, whatever that means. Is it two days, two months, two years? No one's ever defined it which allowed the CIA, of course, to keep running the things as they did. Uh, their head counsel, Rizzo, complained, my God, you're gonna stop the rendition program. There was a clarification saying that we're not really stopping the rendition program. In fact, you could take detainees to other countries where they might torture them and we might get some information out of that torture. Well, that apparently also goes on. We didn't do the torture, but the rendition program continues. Third of all, uh, they were supposed to be tried in criminal courts, of course, these detainees that we have. That was President Obama's promise to shut down Guantanamo Bay, except the security apparatus didn't like that either. So President Obama changed it so that you would uh, go after these guys in criminal court if it was, quote, feasible. Okay, so in other words, military commissions were not ruled out. And the New York Times summarizes by saying, quote, Without showing his hand, Mr. Obama had preserved three major policies, rendition, military commissions, and indefinite detention. So in many ways, the heart of the Bush regime continues in this field. Fantastic. Now, uh, when you get to the Guantanamo Bay closing, now remember uh, the excuse that the Obama administration uses, well, there was nothing we could do because the Republicans fought back on this and defeated us. Now part of that is true, as I've said over and over. The other part is, I said they didn't fight back hard enough, they didn't make it a priority. Well, turns out I was correct. Here's what the New York Times reports. Quote, in fact, both Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton and the Attorney General Mr. Holder had warned that the plan to close Guantanamo Prison was in peril and they volunteered to fight for it on Capitol Hill, according to officials. But with Mr. Obama's backing, his chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, blocked them, saying health care reform had to go first. So, there it is. Because of Rahm and because of the decision President Obama made, we will not fight. We will not fight the Republicans. We will just accept their conditions on Guantanamo and keep it open, well, indefinitely. It appears that there is absolutely no plan right now to shut down Guantanamo Bay. So. It is as unfortunately as we suspected. Now, how about uh, the drone program? Well, you hear so often, and sometimes officials like William Brennan come out and say, hey, you know what? We didn't kill any civilians. Now, that was so patently absurd. He's the head of the counterterrorism for uh, the Obama administration. That later he had to backpedal and say, all right, maybe it's in the single digits. A comical number they put out is seven. Well, here's the interesting part. How they count civilians, New York Times explains. Mr. Obama embraced a disputed method for counting civilian casualties. It in effect counts all military age males in a strike zone as combatants, according to several administration officials, unless there is explicit intelligence posthumously proving them innocent. Do you understand that? That's unbelievable. So not only are they guilty until proven innocent, but they're actually executed before you could even prove them innocent. Your only chance of calling them something other than a militant or a combatant is if somehow you were to present evidence on those people after we already executed them. And by the way, this is not just New York Times opinion. They talked to three dozen current and former officials within national security apparatus for the Obama administration. Part of this is the Obama administration bragging about how tough they are on national security. Oh, fantastic. Look, I don't mind tough. I, in fact, I, I have mixed feelings about the drone program. I think it prevents war in some cases. But executing people, we have no idea whether they're innocent or guilty, whether they're fighting us or not fighting us, is not my idea of tough. That's my idea of stupid. Because it creates more enemies. And by the way, deeply immoral. 
Now, we've told you about this before. New York Times also reported about the personality strikes versus signature strikes. Personality strike is when we think we know who we're hitting. A signature strike is we have no frickin' idea. It, there seems to be some activity in that area. As one of the uh, officials said anonymously to the New York Times, look, sometimes we hit fertilizer trucks. Is it fertilizer to make bombs? It could be. Is it fertilizer for a farm? It could be. Those are signature strikes where we suspect activity by people we don't know because there seems to be something going on there that might at some point be against our interests. Unreal. Michael Leet is former director of the National Counterterrorism Center, and uh, he talks about how after the Christmas Day bomber, the one that had the underwear, bomb in his underwear, President Obama got a scare, and everything was different after that. And I thought, as I read this sentence, I thought, oh no. He said, after that, as, pre as president, it seemed like he felt in his gut the threat to the United States. Now, I have to confess to you, as I read the sentence, I thought, no, no, no. He felt in his gut a threat to his politics. Because he thought, oh my God, because the Republicans went nuts after that. And the Times piece talks about it, and I remember crystal clear. They were like, how could you do this? You, you are so soft. And Dick Cheney came out and said, you see that? They're not doing any of our programs, and that's why the bomber got on the plane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And President Obama was like, oh my God, this might actually affect me. No, 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 we can't have that. And as I was thinking that, you get two paragraphs down in the New York Times, and it is confirmed. Quote, David Axelrod, the president's closest political advisor began showing up at the quote terror tuesday meetings his unspeaking presence a visible reminder of what everyone understood a successful attack would overwhelm the president's other aspirations and achievements the tuesday terror meetings are where they put together the list of who they're going to kill okay and those are the people we think we are hitting that we think we know let alone the ones we kill in signature strikes right what is your political advisor doing there your political advisor is there is because finally this touched a political nerve before it was no big deal to you but wait a minute it might hurt my political chances well no i gotta increase the number of people we're killing in fact when uh, you talk about anwar al-awlaki who's a united states citizen in yemen well that had to be a really difficult decision, right? Because here's a US citizen, he's not gonna receive any trial. He wasn't even indicted. Do you have any idea how easy it is to indict someone? And it would be an absentia. All the government would have to do is show up in a courthouse and say, here's our evidence, can you please indict him as someone who is trying to attack the United States of America? They wouldn't even bother doing that. They just executed him. So that means the precedent has been set. Any US citizen abroad can be executed summarily by any president if they feel he's a threat. They don't have to go to court at all. No due process. Now, of course, this is where Eric Holder famously said, well, due process is not necessarily judicial process, which means if the president gets together with people, including his political advisor, and thinks it's politically expedient to, ex to execute you, well, that's apparently the new due process. Well, uh, you know, since this is so groundbreaking, President Obama must have really sweated this one out before he made the decision, right? Nope. According to his chief of staff at the time, William Daly, Quote, this is an easy one, the president said. An easy one. If that's the easy ones, I hate to see the hard ones. Now, we move forward. So, Dennis Blair is a former director of national intelligence. He objected to some of these programs. He thought we were going too far. Of course, he has been removed. How dare you be soft on terrorism? when we're summarily executing US citizens abroad. What do you mean? I, I don't even know if he made it to that point. He had so many problems with the programs. Uh, the steady, and here's what he says uh, here. Quote, the steady refrain in the White House was, this is the only game in town. Reminded me of body counts in Vietnam. Of course, Dennis Blair also served in Vietnam. Hey, it's the only game in town, man, drone strikes. Yeah, no, 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 don't even think about it. It's all easy. Dennis Blair continues. It is the politically advantageous thing to do. Low cost, no U.S. casualties, gives the appearance of toughness, it plays well domestically, and it is unpopular only in other countries. Any damage it does to the national interest only shows up over the long term. By the way, in the article, it states, as 
any good reporting in on the issues of Pakistan and Yemen state that ever since the drone strike program began, our relationship with Pakistan and Yemen has been more rocky and it has led to more instability. And in the case of Yemen, at least, there has been much more terrorism. Now, is that all connected to the drone program? We're not sure. Who cares? It's politically expedient. And if you have a problem, that's for another president to deal with. But this president's got to show how tough he is on national security. He's going to out-tough the Republicans. And the New York Times summarizes in the end by saying, quote, Mr. Obama's record has eroded the political perception that Democrats are weak on national security. Well, you might as well hang a mission accomplished sign. They continue, no one would have imagined four years ago that his counterterrorism policies would come under far more fierce attack from the American Civil Liberties Union than from Mr. Romney. But you see, to the Obama administration, what you just saw there is a point of pride. You see that? We're more vicious and stupid than the Republicans. So we get more criticism from the ACLU because we're shredding your rights than we do from the Republican barbarians. Well, congratulations. You must feel so proud. But this is definitely not the change I voted for. My guess is if you cared about any of these issues, it's certainly not the change you voted for. Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. Last month, Jay rode his bike from New York City to Washington, D.C. as a fundraiser in support of three climate change NGOs. Now here's your chance to help out with our significantly growing climate change problem. On Jay's ride, one of those climate ride-sponsored NGOs was 350.org. Right now, 350.org, along with Taxpayers for Common Sense, Friends of the Earth, Sierra Club, Defenders of Wildlife, Earth Justice, and Oil Change International are all endorsing Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Keith Ellison's new piece of legislation entitled the End Polluter Welfare Act. The End Polluter Welfare Act would repeal $113 billion of tax breaks, handouts, and direct subsidies for the fossil fuel industry over the next 10 years. The fossil fuel industry is one of the richest and most profitable industries worldwide. Each year, they needlessly benefit from your tax dollars to increase their wealth and power while decreasing our chances for a sustainable and renewable clean energy future. The Sanders-Ellison-sponsored act will seek to end the outrageous support our government is currently throwing at this industry and will shrink the disparity between fossil fuel and renewable energy government support. Unlike other renewable energy incentives, which periodically expire and require Congress to approve extensions, the fossil fuel industry has dozens of subsidies permanently ingrained in the tax code from decades of successful lobbying. The fossil fuel industry does not need your taxpayer subsidies. In 2011, the big five oil companies alone made $137 billion in profits. During the first quarter of 2012, earned a combined $33.5 billion, or $368 million per day. The End Polluter Welfare Act seeks to eliminate the special taxpayer financing and sets fair royalty policies to ensure the fossil fuel corporations pay their fair share. At a time when we have record deficits, imagine how much Congress could save by passing this bill. Imagine $14 billion saved by eliminating the intangible drilling deductions. $12 billion saved by repealing a 2004 law that allows fossil fuel corporations to take deductions aimed at helping American manufacturers by claiming they themselves are manufacturers. Imagine $6.8 billion saved by closing the loophole that allows corporations like BP to deduct money they spent cleaning up their own oil spill and paying damages. 
Imagine $2.4 billion saved by shutting the Federal Office of Fossil Energy, and another $10.6 billion saved by recouping lost royalties for offshore drilling in public waters. So here's what you can do to help make sure this bill gets passed. Please go to nfossilfuelsubsidies.org slash scoreboard to find out if your elected representative supports this bill and to find out just how much they benefit from dirty energy money. This campaign also gives you the tools and scripts to write or call your own representative's office in order to pressure Congress to stand against big oil, fossil fuels, and gas, and to finally turn the corner in support of true, sustainable, alternative energy. It's time Congress respected the environment and our tax dollars. This has been a Best of the Left Activism Update. For more information about the link in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. I hope you enjoy this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Right before the start of the Iraq War, Newsweek magazine published a remarkable story challenging one of the key arguments about Iraq's WMDs. For years, U.S. officials had claimed that a former high-ranking official spilled the beans about Iraq's weapons. But it turned out, as Newsweek reported, what he told CIA and U.N. investigators was that Iraq had destroyed those stockpiles. That story came to mind this week when Newsweek published an excerpt from a new book by former Bush Secretary of State Colin Powell. He talks about the Iraq intelligence debacle mostly as the failure of others who worked for him to stop him from saying things that weren't true. It turns out that facts may not really be facts, Powell writes. And then he goes on to say that he's got a keen sense about this stuff. Quote, my warning radar always goes on alert when qualifiers are attached to facts, close quote. Well, apparently the fault lies in other people's failure to have the same kind of radar. Powell laid out the case at the UN in 2003, passing off falsehoods as truth because someone didn't tell him to not do it. This is nonsense. As has been well documented, there were intelligence analysts at Powell's very own State Department in real time raising serious doubts about the claims that would form the basis for Powell's speech. Now, it's not surprising that Colin Powell would try to blame others for what he did. The real question is why Newsweek would publish this self-serving revisionism. They did critical, important journalism when it mattered. Colin Powell wants you to think that never happened. And Newsweek is helping him do it. Colin Powell. You all remember him, right? He was um, he was the nice man who was the reasonable guy in the Bush administration, the one who said, if uh, we need to go to war with Iraq, we really need to go to a war with Iraq. He doesn't walk around with talcum powder, folks, in little vials, and then just whip it out at the, um, at the United Nations. No. No, he, he brought that specifically that day to make a point, and that was it was just a matter of time before we were all poisoned by a biological attack from Saddam Hussein. Don't let the smoking gun be a mushroom cloud or a cloud of biological agents. And, of course, this was 
the day that uh, Tom Friedman and all the other establishment um, writers in this country, whether they were right or left, supposedly, said, wow, this is a slam dunk. When Colin Powell says we have to invade a country, we really do have to invade a country. Well, we've known for some time that well, he claims that he was lied to as well. Sort of. Sort of. I mean, it's not totally clear. Back in around 2005, Lawrence Wilkerson, his chief of staff, started doing the, the rounds, painting a, a picture of a Colin Powell who trusted those around him to give him the proper information. At first it seemed that it was Tenet was to blame, George Tenet, but then, then it sort of seemed like it wasn't. I mean, nobody's coming out and taking any responsibility for this. And now Colin Powell has uh, written a book. This is not the, the same of his bi as his biography, which, of course, he didn't do. But it is a, a book entitled, It Worked for Me in Life and Leadership. Yes, it did work for Colin Powell as he's writing books and touring around, giving speaking engagements. One of the revelations in his book, and this is going to come as a shock to all of you, and this is where I would need my sound effect board to say, surprise, surprise. But he also complains, er, uh, contends, contrary to what George Bush said. You remember George Bush wrote a book. I think it was in crayon. I didn't get a chance to read it. Decision points. And, of course, one of those decision points was... Uh, when we all gather around to uh, talk about whether we should go after Iraq. And according to George Bush, George Bush was really one of the guys who was really reluctant to attack uh, Iraq. Because uh, I didn't want to use force. Well, uh, Colin Powell sneaks into his leadership parable book that uh, there was never a decision point. It just seemed a foregone conclusion that the National Security Council never even met to discuss invading Iraq. And uh, we've heard the same thing from uh, Condi Rice and George Tenet, that there was never a debate about whether or not they were going into Iraq. It was more or less just how are we going to do it. And so uh, that, you know, that's there, but we, what we're seeing now is just, you know, one more attempt to sort of whitewash one of these players' role in this debacle. Powell briefly touches on how he came to provide that false and misleading information that he was forced to pass on at the United Nations. And, of course, he blames Dick Cheney and uh, Scooter Libby in particular, who wrote a memo. Scooter is the sort of the easy uh, whipping boy in that administration. But, of course, they were all at fault. There was plenty of evidence that Curveball, who recently came out and said, yeah, oh, yeah, I lied about all of it, was a source not to be trusted because the Clinton administration and under the Clinton administration, the CIA had rejected this guy's story literally maybe a half a dozen times, documented times. This guy's a nut job. This guy's got his own agenda. And it wasn't until uh, Cheney et al. requested 22 briefings from the CIA when I think number 22 was the one where they got what they wanted. And Powell, in his book, gives himself credit for rejecting some of the lies that Cheney wanted to use. He acknowledges in the book, uh, according to uh, Dan Frumpkin, who apparently got an advanced copy, that, quote, one of my most momentous failures, the one with the widest ranging impact, was his speech at the UN. But he also concludes that every, every senior U.S. official would have made the exact same case. So in other words, 
this was a massive screw-up, but I cannot be blamed for it because anyone would have made that same massive screw-up. And then he says, the lesson of all this is, quote, always try to get over failure quickly. Learn from it. Study how you contribute to it, and if you're responsible for it, own up to it. He writes in a book ten years later. A book, incidentally, that's just about leadership parables. If you're the CEO of a company, let's say. Where, ostensibly, I guess, if your screw-up is uh, really big, you lose a lot of money for your shareholders. In this case, Powell screw up well over 100,000 civilians dead, nearly 5,000 U.S. military personnel dead, tens of thousands in some way injured, probably with lifelong scars, whether they're phys physical or emotional, millions upon millions of Iraqis either in exile or internally displaced, But what are you going to do? Learn from your mistakes and try not to make them again. And the best uh, piece uh, line in this piece by Dan Frumkin, and for a long time I thought Wilkerson was being sent out there to whitewash for Powell. And the only thing Wilkerson will say, what do you make of his conclusory lesson, the one about I've just got to move on, acknowledge your mistakes to yourself, and then move on and know you're going to get a big payday. Uh, Wilkerson says, quote, Powell's rules are for everyone else. That's what makes it such a must-read. Unbelievable. Not, not an ounce of accountability. And I, and I want to remind you, uh, Colin Powell, you'll recall as he was holding up that vial of powder, and he was showing you pictures of essentially an ice cream truck that some would call an ice cream truck. Other people would say, hey, that's a, a mobile biological weapons lab. It's actually closer to uh, an uh, ice cream truck. But he read off intercepts that U.S. listening device. Remember, the U.S. supposedly had a long list of storage facilities and labs that were developing all of this incredible biological agents that were going to take us out. Remember, it takes like a ton of ricin to kill like a hundred men on a battlefield. But nevertheless, we had this long list. And you'll remember that when Colin Powell was in front of the United Nations, he was holding up this vial, there were hundreds of U.N. weapons inspectors in country saying to the CIA, hey, where's that list? Uh, because we can't find anything. Do you have a double top secret list? Because the list that you sent us, there's nothing there. And Powell read off intercepts between... Iraqi commanders and Iraqis at these different locations. And the intercepts, as Powell read them, seemed to suggest that these Iraqis were hiding things. But in fact, and Powell surely knew because he changed the wording and the emphasis and left certain things out in his retelling of this, all they were doing was you guys better certify, the commanders are saying, you better certify to us that there's no weapons of mass destruction there. That there's nothing that could be considered weapons of mass destruction. You better look around your base and make sure nobody's got anything. And if they don't, you better tell us. <laughs> because we keep telling the Americans we don't have it at this point. So you better certify which is exactly what you would do if you were trying to prove that you don't have any. But that's, of course, not the way it was presented to us. We were led into a war of choice. And you know who's been held accountable for that? 
Um, nobody. But what are you going to do? You know, as Colin Powell says, you know, realize you made your mistakes. Own up to them, but also say that anybody else would have made the exact same mistake. So you're not really owning up to it. It's not really a mistake, is it? I mean, if every single other person would do that, that's not really a mistake. It's just your job. And then go on to make a lot of money. And hopefully clean up your reputation so that you still get written about well in history books. It's It really is uh, disgusting. It's the Onion Radio News. A mass grave is blasted for its lack of diversity. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Members of the International Coalition for Equality harshly criticized the newly unearthed mass grave in Bosnia today, saying it lacked religious and racial diversity. After noting that the newly discovered funeral pit contains nearly 300 Croats and only one single representative Serb, ICE spokesman Jacques Marchand lashed out. Exclusionary burial practices like this send a negative message to the world. Corpses of all races and creeds should be tossed together to decay in harmony. Marchand reluctantly acknowledged, however, that the grave did at least have a sprinkling of women and children. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News online. Congratulations to the tens of thousands of demonstrators who went to Chicago to protest against NATO and the Afghanistan war over the weekend. I would have loved to have been there myself, but I was at my daughter's college graduation. But from what I can tell, the massive and overwhelmingly peaceful demonstrations brought home the insanity of NATO in this day and age. NATO, after all, stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And Afghanistan, last I looked, wasn't anywhere near the North Atlantic. But the Afghan war has given NATO a new reason for being. Since the fall of the Soviet Union more than two decades ago, NATO has been devoid of a purpose. Washington has turned it into a global fighting force, granting a patent of internationalism to U.S. interventions, which may always have been NATO's function, only not so obviously as now. That's why the protests against NATO in Chicago were so essential. There's no valid reason for NATO to exist today. Europe can't afford it, neither can we, and the President of the United States doesn't need any more divisions than he has already, or any more masks for endless wars. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Over the weekend, uh, we have new reports of devastating attacks in Syria by the Assad regime. Uh, 108 people killed, including 34 women and 49 children in Hula, uh, and that is near the central Syrian city of Homs. And the details are horrific. I'm about to show you a video which uh, is the 
honestly the most revolting video I've ever seen, but I really need you to see it if you can stomach it because this shows you what war is actually like and what the Assad regime has actually done and, uh, and why people are so up in arms over it. Uh, in fact, perhaps quite literally, because now finally uh, the U.S. administration is considering um, arming, they claim in public, not necessarily arming, but assisting uh, the opposition in Syria, but in reality it might be arming them through uh, our allies in the Gulf. And uh, right now the U.N. says their observers have seen that in fact it was the Syrian uh, pro-regime forces that not only went into the city and did massive uh, shelling, uh, but shot and stabbed people at close range. Now, we're going to show you the results of that. I, I'm not kidding when I'm giving you a warning on this video. It's a really, really disturbing video. If you don't think you can handle it, don't watch it. Uh, but. This is what happens when you let dictators run the place. And what's amazing about YouTube is that in the past they would have done this and nobody would have seen it. They would have intimidated the locals and they would have moved on. In fact, that's literally what happened under Bashar al-Assad, who is, I'm sorry, Hafez al-Assad, who was the father of Bashar al-Assad uh, earlier in a similar area, right? But now the world sees it. So if you can stomach it, here are the murdered children in Syria. After watching the video, which I could hardly do a second time, I had to keep looking away from it, uh, you know, I can understand the rage that's going through uh, the world right now. I wanted to kill Assad with my bare hands after I saw that video. Uh, obviously, that's not the kind of thing uh, that, you know, is possible or, or what we want to encourage. Uh, but I don't know what we want to encourage because this is a very, very tough problem. And God, we've uh, you know gone into other countries in the Middle East for what appears to be far less. Now, uh, the reaction of the governments throughout the world uh, has been significant, but I don't know if it's significant enough. Uh, the diplomats, uh, Syrian diplomats, have been kicked out of Canada, England, Australia, uh, Germany, France, Italy, Spain. And, uh, and some out of the U.S. as well. Hillary Clinton has said this is murder and fear and the regime must come to an end. Of course, the Syrian Deputy Foreign Minister Faisal Mekdad said that since the ceasefire was put into effect, that the government, quote, had not committed a single violation. Did that video look like they had not committed a single violation? Uh, you know, it's being reported by the rest of the press as unconfirmed. Uh, if they fake that, they're the most amazing movie-making production outside of Hollywood. That didn't look remotely fake to me. That looked like that's what really happened in Syria. The Russians are uh, now finally beginning some condemnation of the Syrian government, which is their ally. But even so, they say, hey, you know what? It might have been third-party agents. It might not necessarily have been the government. And that, uh, gov that particular city was not controlled by the government. They've got a million excuses. We're not sure if a lot of the killing happened at close range. Again, watching that video, did you get a sense of whether you're sure if it happened in close range? It absolutely did. Uh, now, Germany's foreign minister, uh, Guido Westerwell, says it has been clear not just since Hula de Syria has no future under Assad, echoing what Hillary Clinton has said. And Bob Carter, Australia's foreign minister, says this is the most effective way kicking out these diplomats. We've got of sending a message of revulsion of what has happened in Syria. That is, of course, not the most effective way. That is simply dim diplomatic maneuvers, ones that are well justified. Of course, uh, the most forceful way is going to get Assad. Now, there are even reports that uh, the U.S. for the last month has been training in Jordan. Uh, what it's you know doing in terms of the training is unclear, uh, but uh, they are readying some options apparently. And one of the options is a transition from power for Assad, but that would remain uh, or keep the current power structure in place as they did in Yemen. I'm not sure that's uh, good enough either because. It's not necessarily Assad that's just doing this. It's clearly uh, the top people in the Syrian government that are authorizing this kind of absolute massacres and uh, 
and barbarism like I've literally never seen before. And that's what's amazing about the new world because it's not because it didn't exist. This has been done to children before, it's been done to women before, but now we get to see it. And when we do, it's hard not to react. Of course, the question going forward is, how do you react? And that's a really tough question. ago, Iranians protesting a rather obviously rigged presidential election in their country were met in the streets by these guys. Uh, obviously some kind of coordinated force, the unmarked motorcycle, one of their hallmarks, but they are not wearing uniforms. They are the Basij, a kind of militia operating at the behest of the government. They are equipped and obviously directed to be beating and going after, and in some cases killing protesters, but because they are out of uniform, the government doesn't exactly have to answer for their actions. They are deniable. With clubs, tear gas, and axes, witnesses say Iran today crushed demonstrators who dared to take to the streets. Multiple witnesses claiming to be at the scene consistently described a savage crackdown on a few hundred protesters, outnumbered by several thousand security forces, including the feared Basij militia. The militia, often in plain clothing and loyal to Iran's supreme leader, has used crude weapons, including sticks, axes, chains, and machetes. One year ago, after that in Iran, three years ago, one year ago, we got the same deal in a different country. Same deal, different country, same idea. The protesters in Egypt, in Cairo, and Tahrir Square were chased and beaten in one of the more surreal sites of that revolution. Cairo is a big, modern, cosmopolitan city. People do not generally ride around on camels in a city of seven million people. But one of the ways besieged-style militiamen attacked opposition forces in Cairo was by riding horses and camels into the crowds in Tahrir Square to terrify and trample and beat people. Egypt ordered a crackdown against anti-government demonstrators, but not with troops, tanks, or uniformed police. Instead, it sent in goon squads disguised as supporters of President Mubarak. It was immediately clear these were not demonstrators. Thousands of Mubarak supporters charged into Cairo's Tahrir Square. The protesters, unarmed, were caught off guard by the surprise attack. The pro-Mubarak demonstrators rushed the protesters on horseback and with camels. As in Iran, two years before Tahrir Square, these militias were an important part of the way that the government was using force against its own people. They try to use the military in these cases, they definitely use police and other uniformed forces, but to be able to use out-of-uniform forces is a way to employ violence against your own people in ways that you do not want to have to defend or explain. As a despot fighting your own citizens, you can direct these militias to do anything you want, and you can deny responsibility for everything they do. That is what the U.S. government says is happening now in yet another country, in Syria, where a 15-month uprising against the Assad regime is blamed for between 9,000 and 12,000 deaths already. More than 100 of those deaths occurred all at once on Friday in a town called Hula. 108 people killed. 83 of them women and children. A UN investigation of the massacre says many of the deaths appear to have just been summary executions. Whole families shot inside their houses. Just wiped out, the UN report does not say who committed the killings. But witnesses to the massacre, including at least one survivor who was wounded and only survived thanks to being left for dead, said that most of the killings were committed by militias, by pro-government militiamen acting for the government, but while not wearing uniforms. True to type, the Syrian government says it is not responsible for what happened in Hula this weekend. They are blaming the massacre there on terrorists. The U.S. government says it was the Syrian militia and that the Syrian militia is being aided and abetted by, frankly, Syria's last stone ally in the world, the Iranians. 
Russia had been something close to an ally for Syria for all of this time, but the Hula massacre appears to be maybe even too much for Russia. Russia joined the rest of the UN Security Council this weekend in condemning the massacre. And then today, a dramatic coordinated action. France, Britain, Canada, Germany, Italy, Spain, Australia, Bulgaria, and us, the government of the United States, all announcing simultaneously that they are kicking out Syria's top diplomats as a protest. This morning, we called in Syrian charge d'affaires, Zahir Jabour, and informed him that he is no longer welcome in the United States and gave him 72 hours to depart. Uh, we took this action in response to the massacre in the village of Huala, absolutely indefensible, vile, despicable massacre against uh, innocent children, women, shot at point-blank range by regime thugs, the Shabiha, aided and abetted by the Iranians who were actually bragging about it over the weekend. And again, the fact that Assad has to call in these Shabiha thugs, has to hire thugs off the street to go do his dirty bidding and has to get outside aid from his only friend left, the Iranians, speaks to his desperation. There are children standing here, arms outstretched into the sky, tears drying on their face. He has been here Brothers lie in shallow graves Fathers lost without a trace A nation blind to their disgrace Since he's been here And I see no bravery No bravery In your eyes anymore sadness And I see no bravery no bravery in your eyes and a If you're wondering why we acted here, we're not acting here, and we did act in Libya, Iraq, etc. Look, there are obvious geopolitical reasons, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that we're definitely not going to act. It doesn't necessarily dictate how we should act. So let me give you the two uh, examples, right? So in Libya, we had atrocities. Were they at this level? I don't know that anything's been at this level, right? Uh, but Libya has a lot of oil. And so France, for example, did not have good oil contracts in Libya. This is real. This is real. This is how people make decisions, okay? This is how countries make decisions. They, they would have benefited from an upheaval in Libya where they would have redone the oil contracts, which is, by the way, exactly what happened. And after the war, France got much better oil contracts, to my understanding. So, and the countries that had better contracts with Li uh, Libya were not as interested in war, including Turkey in the beginning. Later, Turkey switched over to the other side and said that it had gone too far. In this case, Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, also making very strong statements about Syria, saying that at some point the UN must act, and that point is coming uh, fairly soon. Uh, now, Syria doesn't have any oil. So, tick-tock, 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 babies are killed, no action. Now, we've already acted in Libya, so then people say, hey, you know what, can we really stand uh, for another Middle Eastern war? Oh, well, that's a fair question, especially when you look at the second example, Iraq, right? Iraq was a country we invaded based on far, far, far less. There was none of this going on presently. Anything that had happened that Saddam Hussein had done terrible had happened over a decade ago, right? But we said, oh my God, what if he were to do something in the future and attack that country? Iraq has oil. Now, there's a third angle here. Syria has, uh, you know, a relationship with Israel that's really not spoken of much. It's theoretically hostile, but in reality, perfectly friendly when it comes to the two regimes. They don't bother Israel at all. So, now, that's the devil we know. Doesn't mean it's a, uh, that Israel thinks Assad is a good guy. They don't, right? Uh, but that, but that's a devil that they not only know, but already had to deal with. Now you bring in somebody else, you bring in a democracy. As they saw in Egypt, maybe the democracy isn't as pro-Israel as the current autocratic regime. So that complicates the issue. So how do you go forward? Now look, last thing on this. Syria is very confusing in terms of what we should do and not do uh, 
nobody wants to commit ground troops to another messy war in the Middle East. And who do you want to put in power? It's a tough situation. It involves perhaps even more lives lost if you intervene. And once you get into the middle of the muck, then things get more confusing as to which, who's on which side. So those are the downsides of going into Syria. Could we do some sort of aerial bombing as we did in Libya? Possibly, right? But one other thing that complicates it is the fact that our government is so stridently anti-Iran. Now, Syria, at least the government, is friendly with Iran, so that makes us more likely to go into Syria. But on the other hand, we don't want to go into Syria because what we really want to do is go into Iran. Now, Iran, one, is developing nuclear energy, not necessarily weapons. In fact, every intelligence agency says they have no nuclear weapons or the capacity to make nuclear weapons at this point. But we want to go to Iran. One, because we want to head that off, presumably. Number two, Iran has oil. Syria doesn't have oil. So all the propaganda that you hear in the United States is revolving around how dangerous Iran is, how we've got to act, how we've got to do something about Iran. Now, Iran has mistreated its own citizens as well. They had a fraud of an election. They don't, the leaders of Iran do not represent the people of Iran, right? But they have not had nothing of the scale that has happened in Syria with murdered children and women, 9,000 dead overall since the uprising began, just absolute massacres by the Syrian government. But the propaganda in the United States every day is about how terrible Iran is and how Syria is a complicated situation. Now the latter is right, it is complicated. But you cannot tell me, and this is the one thing that is absolutely clear, you cannot tell me that we should consider bombing Iran, but that we should not consider bombing Syria. That somehow the Iranian government is more dangerous and more lethal and more gruesome than the Syrian government. Now you can tell me about geopolitical considerations, you can tell me about oil, you can tell me about Israel, you can tell me about other concerns, and that's keeping it real. But if you pretend that somehow Iran poses a greater danger to its own citizens or to the world than Syria does, well, that is indefensible. Hey, Jay, this is Max calling in from the People's Republic of Davis, California. It sounded like your brother uh, asked a really probing and important question about the rhetoric of the 1% uh, in regards to America and 1% in regards to the world. The way I see it is that, you know, this 99%, 1% rhetoric is a pretty easy sell for Americans, American audiences, because this idea that, okay, once we redistribute wealth, things will be better for us, for, for the majority of Americans, things will improve. That's, you know, an easy message to sell. But the reason why we're having this conversation is that it's a harder thing to sell when you say, well, if we really distributed wealth throughout the world, all of our standards of living would probably go down a whole lot. However, I think what's important here is that one of the main causes of global inequality are the corporate policies of the American corporate state. I don't think I need to explain to the listeners of the show that obviously corporations have undue influence on our laws, on our policies, especially on our international trade policies. Um, and that creates an entire world of inequality. So once we get a handle on the nature of our government and make it more representative of the people, we can start re redistributing wealth in our country. Then I think we can talk about reorganizing the world in that image. But we have to get there first. Second of all, when we talk about outsourcing jobs and, you know, trying to trade within America, it's because, you know, no matter how poor our labor situation is in the United States, we are still technically the first world and we have some labor protections that we take for granted. When thousands of jobs are moved to China or India, we're talking a lot of the time people working in sweatshop conditions and exploiting really hard you know, barbarous labor. 
something that we're just, you know, that we're seeing more and more in the United States, but we're not quite there yet. In regards to corporations being nationless, I'm going to generally agree with that statement. Um, I think that's backed by this idea that we see income inequality spike up as there is a depression or a recession. It's because there seems to be, in some occasions, at least in extreme scenarios, an inverse proportion to the success of the country and the income inequality within a country. But only, I would say, in these extreme scenarios, uh, during the boom periods, there seems to be a correlation between economic success and the people at the top. But again, even in those situations, you usually see a more equitable income distribution. Um, regardless, I fear that I've gone on too long, but I hope I've answered your question. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing this conversation play out. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work as always. Hello, Jay. My name is Al. I live in Tokyo. Um, I'm calling in regards to the Chris Hayes having to apologize for suggesting that we shouldn't use the term hero indiscriminately. I want to say that I agree with Brian that the term hero should be used for those who actually perform heroic deeds. Um, I'm a veteran myself, veteran of the Vietnam era. And I uh, also agree with Tim, this whole support your troops meme, just something that began. So that uh, support of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and of course carried on to the second Gulf War. And finally, I would like to thank you for reminding our conservative friend that history is ultimately progressive. And that if you're actually paying attention, when you grow up, you become less conservative, not more. Uh, that's it. Thanks for all your great work, and uh, keep it up. Hey, Jay, this is Ronald in Baltimore. I've been listening and re-listening to your episode number 609. The episode, as all your episodes are, was uniformly excellent. Except I couldn't let pass the commentary by Matthew Rothschild from The Progressive, he seems to blame the USA Patriot Act, passed by conservatives, for creating the thought crime under which a Muslim jihadi sympathizer was jailed. I wonder how Mr. Rothschild squares this opposition to thought crimes when they're committed by Muslims with what I presume is his opposition to thought crimes committed by Americans who are, say, racists or homophobes. I think you know where I'm going with this. I'd like to have a discussion of hate crimes legislation which I think are simply extra penalties for thought crimes. I'm adamantly opposed to hate crimes legislation, but I'd love to hear how the other progressives who listen to your excellent podcast square this circle. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So if you do want to call in, please feel free to respond to any of the messages uh, you know I played today or anything else, if you like. But uh, the one I want to focus on is about hate crimes legislation. I'm happy to have this conversation because I definitely have a comment about it. And and this is like this is a comment I've been waiting to talk about for years. So uh so get ready, set your minds to mull and prepare yourself to have some perspective dropped on you. So here is my evolution on my thinking about hate crimes legislation. First of all, I went from not having a strong opinion about it, uh you know, early 20s just like, ah, you know, hate yeah, like that sounds right. You know, you shouldn't, that, that's a terrible crime to commit and you should be punished for that. And people who are much smarter than me put these policies in place and I don't have any huge objections to it. And then several years ago, I was introduced to the concept that, uh, that Ronald brought up today is that it's, it's, how is it much more than tantamount to thought crime? And, you know, a crime is a crime. The reason why you commit the crime shouldn't necessarily uh, come into play during sentencing. And uh, so I actually got this perspective from Cenk Uger of the Young Turks, uh, like I said, years ago. And he made the case. He's like, look, like when people commit a crime, you know, if you commit assault, something like that, I want you to be punished like, you know, severely. Like you, the, the, the law should really bring justice to the situation. And you need to punish the person who commits that crime. But the reason why 
you know, getting into thought crime and trying to parse out what a person was thinking when they committed the crime and then changing how uh, the sentence comes down based on that. Like that's just, you know, that that's a level of government trying to get literally inside your head that is really uncomfortable. And since I didn't have a really strong opinion about it in the first place, that pretty much swayed me. I was like, oh, yeah, like being against hate crimes legislation isn't, you know, it's not pro hate crimes obviously it's just a different perspective on like you know how do you adjudicate uh, a case like that and then a few months or a couple years later and i'm totally stealing someone's brilliant perspective on this and i don't know who said it where i heard it uh, so i can't give them credit but this is the the best perspective on hate crimes legislation i have ever heard and I think I've only heard it once. It's, it's so rare to hear this perspective. So I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about it. The perspective I heard was that hate crimes legislation is not intended to punish a person for what they are thinking, but instead sort of thinking of it from another perspective. When a hate crime is committed, you know, a genuine, like there's no question about it, a person is definitely, you know, beat up or abused or, you know, murdered because of the color of their skin or because of their sexual orientation. And it's it's an absolute clear-cut case. So just for the sake of argument, that's the case. The argument is that when a crime like that is committed, it is not simply committed against that one victim. When a hate crime is committed, it is committed against the entire community because it instills fear in the entire community for simply being who they are. And so the argument then is to bring some degree of justice to not only that individual victim, but also to every member of that community who is also a victim of that crime by proxy. So that's my thought on that. It, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a short thing. It doesn't take long to explain, but it, before I heard it, before someone said it, it had never occurred to me that a hate crime was a crime against more than just that one person for who they were but that is a, a crime against a community of people for who they are. And that's the idea behind why the punishment should be more severe because of the range of people it affects. So I thought that was a really interesting perspective. I wish I knew who I heard it from so I could give them credit. In the meantime, I'll just take credit for it myself. And I can't wait to hear people's responses on this, uh, You know, especially from Ronald. I, you know, I'd be interested uh, to hear his reaction. But anyone else, if you have thoughts, throw them out. Number again, 206-202-3410. So that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. That is absolutely how this show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it or by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like from the show through your social networks. That can be done through the show notes on the website. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor